Good morning. This is Jean Abshire with the International Power Hour. Welcome to this week's show. Um, I'm here, as usual, with my colleague, Dr. Cliff Staten, uh, my co-host for the International Power Hour. And this morning, we are very, very happy to be joined um, by Dr. Johnny Alsi, Professor of Economics here at IU Southeast. Thank you very much for having me here. It's a pleasure. We're delighted. Um, and this morning, we're going to be talking about foreign aid. Um, a lot of people see uh, stories in the news about, um, you know, poverty and desperation in many cases in other countries and feel moved by that. And they want to know, you know, how are we helping these people? What are we doing? How does this work? And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And it's also one of probably one of the most misunderstood things in terms of uh, global economics. Uh, we, for example, recent surveys uh, when Americans are asked where they want to cut the budget, the most common answer is foreign aid. Yes. And then they follow up and say, well, how much of the budget is U.S. foreign aid? Well, the, the last survey I looked at, most Americans think it's 26% of I've our budget. I've seen that data as well. That's I mean, right. that's just – That's astronomical. As, as Johnny can tell you, it's, it's, it's about 1%. It's yeah. – yeah, or even less than that to some yeah. degree, depending on how you kind of compute and total the total foreign aid is provided to the rest of the world. What's interesting, I think, too, is while Americans think that uh, foreign aid is 26% of our budget, when asked a another follow-up question, uh, how much, what percentage do you think is appropriate, uh, they think 12% is appropriate, which, is, which to me says, all right, maybe they think we ought to cut back a little, but we still want to help people. We still yes. want to be generous. Um, but again, the reality of... Uh, fact and fiction, what's in people's head, and the actual numbers, uh, there's a there's a dramatic gap there. Yeah, part of the reason is it's not in the radar screen of a lot of people, number one. Number two is also people have kind of undermined the value of facts, and no one takes time to look at the numbers in terms of where the budget money goes, where it comes from. It is this lack of understanding of our total budget process is one of the reasons for this type of myths. So, Johnny, what, perhaps just a simple initial question to talk about, what is foreign aid? Uh, foreign aid is U.S. commitment in terms of providing resources and support uh, to alleviate uh, some of the global issues like poverty and uh, provide economic opportunity and development. And yet at the same time, some of it is strategic in terms of providing some military support, uh, which is critical in areas that we operate to strengthen allies, as well as to kind of prevent any kind of future potential security issues to the United States. So it's a combination of uh, uh, one economic and the other strategic in terms of military support training. And uh, So I think typically when most Americans look at foreign aid, we think of development, Poverty, addressing poverty, and Helping I know pay for health clinics, education, those kind of things. Yes, but a lot of times when you look at figures, it also includes military yes. aid. So I think today we're not going to focus on military aid. We're going to focus on the economic side of the house. Sure. Okay. But yet, yet in the total uh, cumulative sum of foreign aid that is reported, which is one percent, a significant portion of that uh, goes towards providing military support as well as. Uh, providing some kind of tactical military training uh, to areas that have been uh, uh, pretty much uh, in uh, either we are at war or these are places where 
major threat from uh, terrorist activities emerge. And hence, one cannot discount that either. But yet, you're right. Uh, it's a broad topic, and let's kind of keep a focus on economic yes. issues. Well, I'll, I'll and just for perspective, the, the military aid or security aid section of, of quote-unquote foreign aid is h huge. Yes. Um, it is about as big as the economic aid. The data I found um, from the Security Assistance Economic Aid dashboard um, shows that in 2017, uh, the U.S. spent $18.25 billion in economic aid, and that went to 92 different uh country recipients, and $18.23 billion, so $0.02 billion less um, in security aid to 143 different recipients. So, I mean, in terms of, of the portion of the aid, we're looking at a full half that we're actually not going to talk much about today. Absolutely. Just let people be aware. Yeah. So, in terms of, uh, if we're talking about development aid, there's obviously different categories within that. Yes. For example, you might have, uh, and maybe you can touch upon this, uh, uh, disaster relief, humanitarian True. relief. Emergency aid. Hurricanes and, or whatever, or, or earthquakes in Haiti and things like that. That's right. And then there's kind of a long-term development uh, program. And then I know there's also, because I was associated with this at one time, uh, Political component, which, that's right. Uh, in terms of what democracy promoting, promoting American values, American values, yes, true, yes, true. yes, yes, which is democracy. Yeah, in fact, in fact, I looked at some data uh, numbers here, and the CRS, which is a Congressional Research Services, provided a, a kind of breakdown for 2015 in terms of how it is allocated. Long-term development aid is 38 percent, and humanitarian aid is 16 percent. And political aid is 11%. When you talk about long-term aid, uh, as we know, this is primarily to kind of alleviate poverty, provide opportunity, and then provide basic minimum uh, uh, critical needs to people so they can be productive and engage in the respective community and contribute to the economic growth over the long haul. Primarily, it includes global health programs and initiatives to alleviate and reduce AIDS type of issues in uh, Africa or tuberculosis in tropical countries or malaria uh, and polio uh, initiatives that are primarily geared towards women, children, and primarily the vulnerable in the community. The most vulnerable, yes. Yeah. And those AIDS impact is going to be long-term. It cannot be measured immediately after the year in it in which it is initiated. And that is a significant portion, and that's the appropriate thing to do, the moral thing to do, the human thing to do. And as a result, the foreign aid component of that is highly valued. And that's how we've been friends around the world. And more than that, it is the just thing to do. On top of humanitarian aid is a crisis type of situation, which is 16%, which is spent on uh, natural disasters like famine, earthquakes, and, uh, and also other natural man-made disasters. Uh, there could be a genocide in uh, right. mm -hmm. Africa, for example, Rwanda or Congo or places like that where there are still tribal fictions and factions that go after each other. Political aid is, of course, a spread of democracy, and that has been the, one of the primary reasons how foreign aid came into being in, uh, as a result of Marshall Plan rebuilding Europe, and also communism was the next door, and it is a prevention of it and generating allies. Yes, we, and saw, we saw this as a way of 
enhancing our own security. That's spread right. De- spread democracy, we're better off. That's right. And and that continues in the form of prevention of any kind of uh, terrorist activities or people who are more likely to kind of disrupt American views, values, and interests. And therefore, developing friendship and promoting democracy is a way of minimizing that. And that's the type of programs that we uh, kind of talk about here is governance, justice system reforms, and uh, human rights organizations supporting them and also establishing uh, democratic societies. Even with the humanitarian aid, though, there can be um, political and strategic implications. Uh, Clear back in the 1990s under uh, President Clinton, the HIV-AIDS crisis on the African continent was declared a national security threat um, because of the potential destabilization um, politically and socially that uh, huge death tolls from from that disease would have on the continent. So even even that uh, can have a security aspect to it. Absolutely, absolutely. Because most of the political instability uh, erupts from internal crisis within a society. And uh, definitely these type of ailments which afflict the people are going to revolt are going to go against the political establishments for not doing anything. And that could pro- potentially create instability in those economies. Yeah. Yes. And also, you know, when we look at specifically U.S. foreign aid, it can be, <clears throat> another way of looking at it, it can be bilateral. Yes. Where we give to a specific country mm-hmm. or government within that country, or it can be multilateral uh, in terms of uh, where we contribute to some international governmental agency such as the UN Development Fund or some NGO such as uh, I don't know Doctors Without Borders absolutely yeah absolutely absolutely if you really look at the economic development assistant in general uh, of the 25.6 billion dollars that was uh, allocated in 2017 budget 6.1 billion went to economic support fund and global health programs uh, garnered 8.6 billion dollars Migration refugee assistance was $2.8 billion. Development assistance was $3 billion. Food and peace, $1.8 billion. Millennium challenge, uh, that kind of uh, took in $1 billion to kind of create governance as well as stable democracies in most of the countries. And Peace Corps, $410 million. So as a result, in addition to that, one can also kind of take a look at the contribution made by U.S. to the U.N. peacekeeping mission. That is about $8 billion that goes towards it. And hence, you're right. There is a variety of agencies. Some of them are directly directed to the governments. Some of them are NGOs. Some of them are private partnerships. Some of them are global initiatives. And therefore, there are bilateral as well as multilateral kind of operation when it comes to aid allocation. And the number of these especially NGOs, has really proliferated yes. over the last 25 years. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I was reading something the other day on, for example, when Haiti had its earthquake. There are currently 12,000 NGOs in Haiti. Wow. That's amazing. That's a, that's a significant dealing, number. Dealing with aid assistance, yeah. 12,000. And part of the reason for that <laughs> is, part of the reason for that is uh, some of the criticism that has emerged uh, as it pertains to providing foreign aid. In the past, it was economists as well as policymakers in the arena of foreign, uh, evaluating and assessing foreign aid, a critique saying it's a kind of top-down, hand-down mm-hmm. type of version where there is no accountability on the part of uh, donor countries as well as agencies making those decisions. 
where the reality is, what's on the ground. They have very little kind of idea of, of how it has to be addressed, and hence money was kind of allocated in a broad-based manner, which has very little effect other than pocketing some of the politicians who cornered a lion's share of it. And very small sum went to the actual um, uh, recipients, namely the poor. And hence, yeah. these NGOs proliferated to kind of address the local issues, which are some of them are naturally evolving organic institutions addressing specific or targeted areas of poverty alleviation. And plus, these NGOs are taking from the overall aid pool as well. Yes. True. Well, and I mean, on, on the Haiti example, um, I mean, I think probably most people are aware of the, the terrible, devastating earthquake they had and the promises of the international community to, quote unquote, build back oh, right. better. Um, but that hasn't gone so well, despite having 12,000 NGOs in the country, um, which is maybe one of the reasons Haiti is sometimes known as the Republic of NGOs, um, <laughs> because they are doing a lot and with that have a lot of political power within Haiti, which in terms of building democratic capacity is super problematic. I mean, who's running the show? Is it, you know, elected government officials or is it the Republic of NGOs? But also as an example of, of the impact of NGOs and how that doesn't always work out well, uh, the American, American Red Cross planned to build 700 homes uh, in Haiti, but uh, some investigative journalism that came out uh, a couple year, two years ago, uh, <laughs> discovered that uh, six out of the 700 homes were actually built, and no one has any idea what happened to the $500 million that was supposed to be used to build the other um, 694 homes. Um, so that, I mean, that's obviously really bad management. <laughs> so, Johnny, if if we look at the history of U.S. foreign aid, it really is a post-World War II phenomenon. Absolutely. And people often don't realize our first aid program was the Marshall Plan. That's right. Uh, and in many and ways— And that was one of the largest as well. was the largest yes. in terms of yeah. percentage of GDP or, or GNI, whatever index you're using, almost 2%. Since that time, if you use percentage of GNI or GDP as a measure of how much foreign aid, it's actually declined since then. Yeah, it has declined, but also, depending on the situation, it has gone up as well. Uh, for example, 1991, the, the war in uh, Iraq, and then subsequently the, the World Trade Center impact by the terrorist organization further increased the budget, primarily to kind of a provide support, tactical and training support, as well as resources to Afghanistan. And therefore, yes, there are times and incidents and events that affected our uh, security concerns or impacted us in, uh, um, uh, politically. We have kind of stepped up. But however, you're right. Overall, the trend uh, is kind of, uh, on a percentage-wise, measured as GNI, is kind of uh, less than 1% on a global scale. And if we look at, you know, I know when I teach U.S. foreign policy decision-making, and quite often different agencies in the government look at the same program and see it as a, having a different goal. Yeah. And so yeah. during the Cold War, the State Department or Department of Defense may look at foreign aid as an anti-communist tool, right. whereas AID sees this as an economic development Agency for tool. International Development. Yes, yes. That's and so... And if you look at where it's placed, you know, there, there's all there's this strategic, you know, in Europe, 
immediately after World War II, the threat of communism was in Europe. Yeah. Where did we put the Significant. money? In the Marshall Plan. True. The 1960s, where were we? We were in Southeast Asia. Who received most foreign aid? South Vietnam. That's right. Then along comes Camp David, Egypt, and Israel by 7980. And even today, they're among the two top, top recipients. recipients of U.S. foreign aid. That's right. Terrorism, 2001. If yeah. you're on our side, you, you have, have access to foreign aid. Yeah. It introduces the political component yeah. to this. And, yeah. and in recently, Gene, maybe you can comment on this. President Trump has has stated in, in look at his proposed budget. I mean, severely cutting Huge cuts. foreign aid. Yeah. And also, uh, Nikki Haley, our yes. UN ambassador, when, <laughs> when we moved our embassy yeah. to um, Jerusalem, she did what? She basically said, okay. You're with us. <laughs> General Assembly, you want to condemn us? Yep. You vote to condemn us. What are we going to do? Yeah, that's that's um, seems to be the the Trump policy. I mean, Trump is, has uh, you know talked about America first, and and he puts this under that umbrella. Um, he has uh, in both of his uh, budget proposals for you know his first two years in office um, for this for last year and then for this year uh, called for significant cuts, about thirty percent right. to both the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development. Um, now Congress has pushed back on that and. That's has, Right. It has kept funding levels level same uh, as uh, 2017. Yeah. But Trump has been completely ready to to gut foreign aid um, through both of those agencies. And um, yes, Cliff, as you said, they have um, Nikki Ambassador Haley, UN Ambassador Haley, and President Trump have have been explicit about you know if you are with us and you show that you are with us and you vote by by voting with us um, in in the UN General Assembly and the Security Council potentially, um, <laughs> you will uh, continue to receive aid and if if you don't, uh, you won't. And um, I've actually got some numbers going back to our, the, the prior thing about um, aid following our strategic interests. Um, security aid aside, which goes primarily in 2017 to Afghanistan, Israel, Iraq, Egypt, Syria, Jordan. Oh, there's a pattern there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, even, even our uh, economic aid, number one, Afghanistan at uh, 650 million, number two, Jordan at 635 million, uh, number three, Kenya in East Africa, which has uh, um, been plagued also by um, Islamist terrorism in the form of um, al-Shabaab and, and um, as, as one of the main groups there, um, 632 million. Those are those are all very close to each other, Afghanistan, Jordan, and Kenya. Um, Tanzania, right next to Kenya, same sort of issues, 534 billion. Um, then Uganda, Zambia, and Nigeria. Um, so definite patterns there. And security aid, very heavily Middle East. Um, but even that economic aid, it's still heavily about um, security uh, issues. Yeah, in fact, uh, uh, kind of, Tagging along with what you guys said just now, uh, here is something that I read in Washington Post. We talked about President Trump in a State of Union address last month asked the Congress to pass laws requiring USA to go only to America's friends. Mm -hmm. And Nikki Haley says she's taking names yes. of the countries that voted in General Assembly against U.S. recognition in Jerusalem. And then ex-State uh, uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson in Jamaica said the generosity of American people uh, to will go to people who advance American values. 
So therefore, yeah, there is a consistent pattern in terms of what they say, being America first and American friends, and they are the only ones who are worthy of receiving their foreign aid. But to some extent, that's, that, that is the history of, of U.S. foreign aid. We have donated to our, quote, friends or allies during the Cold War. So, but I think what maybe separates this is the Trump administration is very blatant about this in terms of... Too open at the same time saying that we are watching you, we are keeping track of you, we are kind of... A, we're checking boxes. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> in every one of the issues that surface in the General Assembly. And, uh, and on, on top of that, the economic development you talked about, yes, it's based on regional allocation and regional programs. And uh, in Asia, of, of course, it's all the problem areas also receiving the most funding. Afghanistan receiving $1 billion to win the hearts and minds of the people there. Mm -hmm. Pakistan, $422.5 billion. This is from 2015 allocations. And you're right. Africa has been increasingly getting a lion's share of economic aid. And uh, of the top, uh, seven of the top ten recipient countries are from Africa. And most of them are related to the health uh, program initiated by President, President George Bush. W. Bush. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it adds up in terms of what you just said, how it is kind of regional as well. It certainly does. Um, I think we're going to take a break right here. Um, and so the International Power Hour will be back in just a couple of minutes. East, studying power in all its forms and places, offering multiple tracks in political science and public administration. More information online at ius.edu slash political dash science. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that we can give our daughters everything they need to grow and learn. But not every child can focus on classes and play dates. Nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. face hunger. That's one in six. School lunch might be their only meal each day. And it's heartbreaking to imagine any child going to bed hungry. We're dreaming of a perfect day when kids can smile, play, and just be kids without worrying about where their next meal will come from. Feeding America is working to make that perfect day a reality. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. That food is given to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about doing things that make an ordinary day extraordinary. Learning to play an instrument, building a sandcastle, hosting tea parties. Hunger should never be an obstacle to growing up. You can help end childhood hunger in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. You're not wired to have a response to this sound. You're neutral to it. And you can hear it repeatedly without feeling anything. But when we introduce a new stimulus, save the food. We've achieved pulling a natural or inborn response from you. Save the food. Because 40% of all food in the US never gets eaten. Save the food. Cook it, store it, share it. Just don't waste it. For tips and recipes, visit SaveTheFood.com, brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Cliff Staten, Professor of Political Science and International Studies. And we're super happy to have with us this morning our guest, Dr. Johnny Alsi, Professor of Economics here at IU Southeast. And we've been talking about foreign aid. Um, and I think one of the questions that um, I think is also logical to look at is what's the, ma what's the motivation behind this? What are the ideas, the theories? Cliff or Johnny, do you want to? Well, I think if you look academically, um, the idea behind that developed in the early 60s, William Rostow and others that really were big supporters of U.S. foreign aid and pushed the aid program, um, is this idea that basically aid is to somehow interrupt the poverty trap. Johnny, perhaps you may want to tell our audience what is a poverty trap. Oh, oh. I'm stuck here. <laughs> or I can. But, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the poverty trap, as I explain it to my students, is poverty begets poverty. The yeah. poverty cycle. We share cycle. Poverty yeah. cycle. Yeah. Um, yeah. In Different that, names, same yeah. thing. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I call it the vicious cycle. <laughs> so, in other words, if you have, if you spend everything you take in, you have no savings, meaning any small change in where you have to spend your money and increase put you further and further in debt. You can't make any savings. Yeah. So I think the idea is that on a national level or yeah. even at a family yeah. household Indian level, foreign aid is to somehow provide that, I think the scholars called it the big push, push. to increase the savings level and get people kind of, if you imagine, development on a ladder, at least on that lower rung. Does That's that make true. sense? Uh, not only that, in economic theory, we talk about uh, uh, countries are diverse, and uh, there are countries that do not have a whole lot of resources, and especially when it comes to productive resources in terms of advanced labor with uh, managerial skills or technical skills or backgrounds. Uh, several countries do not have the means. Similarly, countries lack technology or countries lack uh, capital. And for those countries which do not have these critical resources, major ingredients for economic performance and productivity enhancement, specializations and growth, then it kind of puts them in this vicious cycle uh, where resources which are scarce has to be, and, and on to counter, there is also uh, population growth that is significantly greater than the rate of growth of the economy itself. Mm -hmm. So which means then it puts enormous burden on the countries to kind of spread the limited amount of goods they produce, a multitude of individuals, and hence their ability to save is relatively non-existent because they are surviving on a daily basis as opposed to um, thinking about the long-term uh, capital, increasing capital stock. And hence any foreign aid would kind of aid them or assist them or enable them to kind of seek the needed resources, expertise, educational training, as well as uh, the, uh, the capital resources required to kind of typically push the economy to some degree. It provides some leverage. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's that's actually at a macro and a and a micro level. Um, that's true of of countries and their capacity on the whole. But that's also true of individuals living within the countries. If people are basically spending all of their incoming resources to, you know, put food on the table for their families and and maintain shelter, they don't have any, uh, you know, savings or, or other resources to, you know, save up to start a business or even, you know, very fundamentally to development to pay for their kids to get an education. 
education. We take, um, to a large degree, a public education, uh, you know, that is affordable and open to everybody very much for granted here. That's right. But even in places where, you know, by law there should be public education accessible, what we actually find in many poorer countries is, is children still can't afford it because there's additional fees and, and other things that, that make access to education prohibitive for a lot of poor people. Um, and so, you know, there's a need for aid there because it is it does become it does become a trap there's no ability to build from generation to generation if you know you can't get educated if you can't start a, a business that can be passed on and increase wealth and stuff like that true so that's one of the reasons why in terms of u.s aid much of it does go to promotion of education especially among women young women in the developing world Women are often um, a particular target for for aid um, through, you know, programs sponsored um, that uh, sponsored by NGOs that that again government aid is is funneled through, um, but also uh, by um, organizations that really focus on um, kind of grassroots aid, aid like microcredit or microfinance. Um, the Grameen Bank uh, uh, begun in Pakistan by Mah uh, in, in Bangladesh. Oh, oh, you're Right. Bangladesh, Pardon yes. me. Thank you. Yes, Bangladesh. Wow, that was a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Spoke on. I do know I was from Bangladesh. Um, by Mohammed Yunus. Thank That's you. Right. Thank you. Um, really, uh, you know, created this this model of giving very small uh, loans to the poorest, typically of women, right? Um, because. Uh, women are more likely it has been found to invest in their families and their futures True. than unfortunately men. and and in fact for his a phenomenal significant and humanitarian work he was awarded a nobel prize in yeah. 2006 and his uh, model of microfinance lending or uh, providing loan at easy terms to the most vulnerable in the uh, population of the any country and, and has been inspired. And people don't realize these are probably loans of $25, $50. The, the average, average loan value is of $100. Yeah. Commercial well. bank, you can't go to the commercial bank and borrow $100. No, commercial bank, you have to have the necessary background in order yes. to, um, so that you're credit worthy of yeah, lending. It, and here, these people have nothing. They are literally dirt poor, living on yeah. street, homeless. Yeah. And then, trying to eke out a living with whatever talent or skill or labor they have or expertise they have and trying to support a family. And therefore, no one would lend them in the right mind, especially if you're a businessman, thinking on profits and losses and also securing and ensuring the risk of lending would be minimal. They would kind of completely avoid this population. And that's the type of population he targeted. And primarily, as you said, Gene, it is right. 95% of the loans were given to women or groups of women. The groups thing is a significant factor. That's right. I think. And the peer pressure thing exactly. in order to accountability. Kind of accountability. Okay. Yes. And as a result, uh, the evidence uh, collected and shared around the world in terms of micro lending from Grameen Bank showcases that his uh, repayment rate is really high and it overshadows even the best of corporate uh, banking sectors. Yeah. And that is one aspect of it. And then he has provided to date 7 million borrowers with the average loan of $100. And because of this uh, significant uh, impact he has had on poor, not just in Bangladesh, and becoming a model which has now been adopted in 100 different countries. Broadly. Right, broadly. 100 different countries, even in advanced countries like the United States. Yep. And you can talk about some of their local programs that are kind of initiated on the basis of micro lending. 
And uh, the experience from this particular um, uh, initiative has been that, the, number one, women are helped. They become self-sufficient, self-confident, mm -hmm. become entrepreneurs, and support the family. And hence, right. a family as a unit is a one which kind of benefits significantly exactly. as opposed to... In other words, there's evidence that this is actually beginning to break this poverty cycle. Right. To some degree. Because some yet, degree. yet, if you really look at it, even the initiatives that we talked about in terms of foreign aid from U.S. going to the rest of the world as economic aid, and especially on the health initiative, educational mm -hmm. component, uh, which both Bill Gates and uh, some of the other economists, uh, Angus Deaton, who's kind of uh, really spoke positively about the need to do this more and win greater level of friends as also alleviate poverty around the world. But yet, oh, as De a- Deaton is quite, is also a critic of foreign aid. Yes. So we can talk about that. Yes, he's a critic, yet at the same time, he sees some aspects of uh, aid which mm -hmm. is having significant impact, especially on the humanitarian side, in terms of uh, reducing uh, infant mortality or mm -hmm. enhancing uh, educational opportunity or providing assistance uh, to poverty alleviation, which is directed to the reci recipients as opposed to going through political agencies. He says it has enormous impact. And uh, in line with that, he kind of, uh, uh, he talks about how insignificant as a percentage that amount is on the overall total of foreign aid we provide. It's so small in that sense. Well, and I mean, when you're talking about amounts like a hundred dollar, you know, a hundred dollar loan, yes. that seems insignificant to probably most most of us. I mean, what on earth can yes, from our perspective, what on earth could some woman do with a hundred dollars? Um, but there are things that can really be done. Um, many uh, poorer countries uh, didn't have access to telephones um, with the physical infrastructure of of you know phone lines, which is expensive mean, in, in you know rural villages and such. Um, and so, kind of in the early days. Of of, of cell phones, uh, women through microfinance could get a loan to to buy a cell phone, maybe be you know one of just a couple cell phones in the village, and she could effectively that be the, the phone booth exactly. Right. Um, and um, you know another alternative that's pretty common is a woman could use a you know a meager hundred dollar loan to buy chickens, mm. and those chickens lay eggs, and with you know those eggs she can feed her family and she which is i mean eggs are a great source of protein which helps with brain development in children which sets them up for education um and then you know any excess eggs she can sell to the neighbors which enhances the neighbors lives and when those chickens become too old to lay they go into the stew pot and those some of those chicken eggs can you know grow into new chickens and it can you know you can really get a positive multiplier spiral. Effect. exactly rather than you know the the vicious cycle of poverty so you can, you know even though a dollars seems like a trivial amount um, in terms of a loan to you know help alleviate poverty from our perspective like a hundred bucks and you know in these contexts can be really meaningful absolutely so those folks that are for lack of better words pro foreign aid and mm -hmm. support foreign aid will often cite the humanitarian the yes. economics the the aid directed at, at schools women and so on and so forth as on a case by Program by program, you can see people have benefited from this. Absolutely. So that, and and you get people like Bill Gates and Jeffrey Sachs who argue in favor, in favor because you can see that it has saved lives. Look yes. at the number of children that have been saved through UNICEF and other 
multilateral donor agency. Absolutely. Well, and Bill Gates isn't just saying hurrah foreign aid. Bill, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation yes, is activity. putting tremendous money behind various aid projects. Not only the money, but it is also the passion and yes. the kind of trips they make, the political connections and the network of, uh, network of agencies they bring together, Good and point. also spawning new ideas in terms of entrepreneurially coming up with solutions to kind of uh, addressing issues on a global scale, as well as providing yeah. money to kind of come up with innovative ideas to alleviate some of the uh, diseases that ail the global community, like hate. Uh, HIV AIDS type of programs where they put money to come up with new solutions there or new discoveries or yeah, polio small really absolutely yeah. they 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 they, they are championing and not only that yeah. they have been inspiring other billionaires to kind of contribute yep. and as a result uh, in silicon valley and rest of the world they've kind of joined forces where billionaires have decided to kind of uh, earmark a substantial portion of their uh, profits profits mm -hmm. as well as net worth to alleviating some of the pressing issues that kind of hurt the global population. So yeah, it, that's, that's an important point. Them. It's not just, you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation throwing money at, you know, issues. They are um, quite systematically trying to, you know, seek out innovators and new yeah. ideas and new approaches and, and, you know, investing in those to see what, what will work more effectively. And also looking at scaling mm -hmm. uh, successes on a broader level and magnifying the effect of it to have a true... It, impact on the global community even though initially some of them are started at a lower scale but they always kind of look for ways to magnify the effect and in top of, on top of that he has also kind of mentioned about how these uh, so-called programs in addition to benefiting the people is providing political stability expanded economic opportunity and winning um, uh, boosting US popularity around the world a small soft, act goes soft, a long way. Soft, soft power. That's right. US the soft, soft power, power that we talked about. Yeah. Yes, yes. There's an interesting uh, component when I talk about foreign aid in my classes. Um, and, Johnny, maybe you can comment on this. Many Amer If you watch a foreign aid bill go through the U.S. Congress, mm -hmm. you'll see certain American companies lobby very heavily in favor of that. Why would they do that? Oh, yeah. Political rent-seeking. It's a common yes. uh, lobbying, uh, the common uh, efforts on the part of businesses to garner any kind of share of these type of resources. And that's why, uh, if you look at the total foreign aid, military aid is significant. And the military aid, obviously, it is a push from um, military-industrial complex where they get to gain uh, enormous profits as a result of these uh, um, in other words, government-subsidized government programs. So government a subsidizes a military effort, but guess what? On the backs of uh, U.S. taxpayers, uh, which means the corporate yeah. giants are going to definitely uh, get rewarded in the process, and no wonder they are pushing it hard, and hence most of the foreign aid is kind of tilted yeah. in favor of corporate America. Yes, you can even see this in some of the food aid. Yes. Historically, much of that has been... USAID is often called tied aid. That's in right. In other words, if a particular country or region's getting foreign economic aid and they need foodstuffs, they can't, quote, take that money and go on the global market and get the cheapest. The competitive price. They, right. Where do they have to go? They have to go to American companies. Yeah. And then and that food aid has to be flown to whatever target on country on American carriers. A US air carrier. That's exactly. right. These are the folks that are actually yeah. lobbying in favor of. Yeah. 
absolutely. foreign aid. Absolutely. A lot of that quote unquote foreign aid um, does go straight into the pockets, the, you know, the, the profits of, of U.S. corporations. And I think that's a lot. That's something that a lot of people don't realize that a lot of it is is actually U.S. corporate aid. Yeah, it's it's also um, underlying factors to kind of create opportunities at home as well. So since we are using American taxpayer dollar, uh, th we want American to kind of companies. That's, that's right. right. We want to create opportunities here. So America therefore, first, right? Key. That's right. <laughs> it, it 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 does help creating jobs, preserving jobs, and also. Rewarding the st uh, st stakeholders in the corporation that are going to be beneficiaries. But it does raise the cost of many of these items. Absolutely. Yeah. Because so. it's not the most competitive price they're going to get in the global marketplace. And having to ship it is also, um, you know, more costly than if you buy it regionally or locally. That's right. And second thing is, all that you might provide may not be the one they're seeking. Just because they're forced to buy, they have no choice. But given, a, given the option, they could have sought something better, higher quality, lower price, or things that they really need uh, the, to address some of the d local uh, taste and preferences. That choice is limited. Sending wheat um, grown by you know, U.S. wheat farmers to a society that eats primarily rice, rice. Um, you know, that's, that's not necessarily well-targeted. <laughs> People may not even know what to do with it. Um, I think we're going to take a break here um, for just a couple of minutes, and then we'll be right back. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the International Studies Department at IU Southeast, where you can prepare for your global future. More information online at ius.edu slash international studies. Welcome back to The Cat Show. Up next, we have Nico. Nico is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their sunspot sleeping, ball chasing, leg rubbing, and of course, companionship. Just look how she struts. It's like she owns the place. And see how she curls up and cuddles her person. The pitch on her purring is simply perfect. Nice one. Fantastic cat. But really the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Nico is to meet one. Visit theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. What? Welcome back to The Dog Show. Up next we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch snuggling, ball chasing, face licking, and of course companionship. Now let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. How intuitive, and now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, the happy dance so common with this group. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. When I grow up, I want to be a new pair of blue jeans. When I grow up, I want to be a kid's first computer. I want to be a warm place on a cold I want to day. Be a football I want to be a bike that races around the country. I want to be a bench on a forest trail. When I grow up, I don't want to be a piece of garbage. And if you recycle me, I won't be. Give your garbage another life. Recycle. Learn how at IWantToBeRecycled.org. Brought to you by Keep America Beautiful and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. I'm here with my colleague Cliff Staden and our guest, Dr. Johnny Alsey, Professor of Economics here at IU Southeast. And we've been talking about foreign aid, and we've talked about some of the benefits, helping people um, have op better opportunities for the future in terms of health and education. Um, but there are critics of foreign aid out there, too. Johnny, would you want to talk about some of the criticisms of this? Yeah, absolutely. No good deed goes unpunished. And so here is foreign aid with this. 
intent is good, but yet there are also critics who kind of uh, strongly kind of voice their opinion why it should not be provided. And uh, university, New York University professor and former World Bank economist William Esterly in his book, uh, 2006 book, White Man's Burden, talks about foreign development aid is dominated by top-down planners and bureaucrats. With he argues it has a, like a one-size-fits-all That's right, approach. with very little accountability. And also he says in that there's scant evidence that aid boosts countries' long-term growth. And that was his opinion. And also he's critical of uh, any type of uh, aid given to counterterrorism efforts, saying that it is helping the most repressive regimes who abuse the aid to kind of uh, not only cement as well as uh, increase the strongholds on the population. And the hence, the evidence during the Cold War is especially relevant here, I think, hmm. in terms of foreign aid going to the pockets of corrupt dictators who uh, were on, quote, our side during the Cold War. And so it, it in a sense, as Easterly, I think, is right, now, it did a, a bit or, or aid bolster repressive, repressive government, government. Yeah. And there's still some issues with that. Oh, yes, I mean, no if doubt. you look at the current list of top beneficiaries, uh, Kenya's had issues with uh, democratic elections and political violence. Uh, Nigeria has a lot of issues. Um, you know, there's uh, there's some there's some concerns in there. Right? Yeah, uh, uh, we talked about this earlier. Angus Deaton, who talks about uh, how it provides a lifeline for corrupt governments, mm -hmm. uh, which otherwise would have had to deal with a populace which is re going to revolt and streamline or kind of force them to kind of change their behavior. <laughs> With aid, they don't have to worry about having a repressive government and pocket themselves. So therefore, he says, it is only kind of enabling the corrupt politicians. And Zambian economist Moyo writes that a trillion dollars of foreign aid has flowed into Africa uh, over the past decade. Uh, however, the real per capita income hasn't improved at all. And therefore, he says, aid hasn't helped. Uh, the population in terms of enhancing the well-being. So therefore, yeah. here are some of the critiques who kind of uh, voice their opinion saying why aid should be either kind of reduced or eliminated. I've read a study um, that came out in 2009 out of a Dutch research group um, that was a pretty interesting and I think powerful study. It looked at 98 countries, which is a lot of them, um, and over the period of 1970 to 2000, so we hmm. you know, saw pre- uh, structural adjustment policy, which is the dominant model for um, international development uh, in the world, and that uh, up through the implementation of all of that. And uh, the results that, that study found were really pretty discouraging. Um, negative growth in the short term, which you think, well, you know, I mean, transitions are bumpy, right? Like, yes. just get it, give it time. Um, except they actually, in most cases, or many cases, found no improvement in the long term. Um, decreases in personal income um, and more uh, uneven wage distribution within the countries. And these were the ones that took IMF aid versus uh, International Monetary Fund aid versus those that didn't. So that's, that's I mean, that's one study, but it is a big it's one. It's sobering. Um, yes. And it's pretty discouraging. Yeah. It is. It yeah. is. But yet there are people who kind of favor foreign aid as well. So who are kind of, uh, as we talked about earlier, Bill Gates and uh, Jeffrey Sachs was mentioned. And they have been highly, highly positive about what aid can do to countries in terms of transforming the societies overall. Yeah, if you read Sachs, he's very critical of the one-size-fits-all foreign aid model. Yeah. In fact, he argues that foreign aid should be uh, kind of like when you go to the doctor, they give you a prescription of how to 
based upon your particular ills. And Sachs is a big proponent of saying, yes. okay, it, it can't be one size fits all. You've right. got to go in. You've got to learn all the ins and outs of this particular country or this region or this group that you're giving aid to and model, develop a program that's going to fit their particular needs. And it could right. involve it could vary tremendously from one to the next. And so he's very highly critical of the, of the one-size-fits-all type uh, model. top-down yeah. uh, bureaucratic type model that, that, is, that is so common here. It's, um, it's interesting. Um, a few years, well, years ago, I was in Malawi, which is in central South Africa, and it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And we visited this small village, and part of their development, they had gotten a grant from the United States, and they were developing ponds to grow fish mm -hmm. to supplement their income. Yeah, on a commercial scale. And the U.S. development folks came in and told them all how this could do, and they built the pond, so on and so forth, and put the fish in. The next year, they come back, and there's no fish in the ponds. Mm. They're all – and, and – the explanation was, well, you didn't ask us. We could have told you there's birds right over there. And they ate all the fish, <laughs> which is a criticism yeah. of what, what I call the paternalism of donors, uh, the fact that we know better. And I, but I think we've made steps in that direction that we do consult with locals rather than letting yeah. not knowing about the birds cross the river. True. Increasingly, initiatives are kind of done on a partnership basis where they kind of uh, try to kind of provide aid based on the local needs, local understanding, local environment, local knowledge, and thereby knowing the true issues and some of the limitation, limiting factors, and in understanding, you're coming up with a solution as opposed to it's a top-down, here is, I'm going to give a template, follow this. Right. And in that sense, it's kind of customized and effectively addresses the um, needs of the communities better. Right. And I think in recent years, foreign aid has fallen under a lot of criticism precisely because of what's happened in Haiti. Yes. Probably the worst example of a foreign aid failure in that, in that sense. And I think a lot of the criticism is saying, okay, what happened in Haiti? Okay, you had Nothing an earthquake good. in 2010 followed by a cholera epidemic. Then you've got... Uh, brought by the international community. Yes. Haiti yes. was cholera-free uh, until the United Nations came in, United, you know, to help. And so, if you look at analyses of what went wrong, you get all kinds of some of the things we've talked about here. True. The fact that you've got NGOs, twelve thousand of them, and no one's coordinating this overall effort. There's hasn't. We didn't go in with a plan. This is what we need to do, and this is how we're going to work with the, the agencies and governments are going to work with each other. And, and clearly we, that's been a huge part of the failure. And weak government structures and institutions, uh, you know, don't have the ability to coordinate that or to, you know, assert themselves over that. Mm. Um, I mean, Haiti, uh, you know, has struggled for years even to have a, have a presidential election. Yes. Um, uh, one of the big things with foreign aid that, people will say is that you have to make it effective a country has to be able to has has i think the term is absorptive capacity they have to have the experts the local people who can actually manage yeah. this amount of money and the aid and the, co the effort to coordinate it to make it successful, successful. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Here is a, uh, the bright side of it where Nicholas Burns, a Harvard University professor and former U.S. ambassador, talks about, yes, there needs to be some restructuring to improve the performance of USAID. However, he warns reducing any funding to USAID and other programs would be unwise, unnecessary, and danger to overall national security. And this was supported by even the 2017 letter written by 120 retired admirals and generals advocating for continued support and funding uh, in the next budget cycle, primarily saying that uh, this is one way we could avoid putting our soldiers in yes. harm's way uh, because this could create calamities and regional uh, uh, what do you call Insec wars, yeah. insecurities, a war, or terroristic threat where we will be forced to kind of go and have our presence to kind of keep peace. And that would kind of cost lives. So therefore, yeah. developing friends and fostering um, opportunity for people to succeed and become prosperous and their well-being improved will minimize those kind of factors. So either you kind of put money front end. Or you pay in the back end. That's so right. The, right. So foreign aid is the back end. You're going to pay more. Probably. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, already we see how much we are spending on Iraq and Afghanistan, and right. uh, just something that something that total up would kind of exceed well into ten billion dollars plus for each of those countries, and that's enormous amount of resources yeah. when we can put America first with that. Yeah, and there are reasons why Congress has pushed back um, on those on those budget cuts um, and continued to sustain funding levels for for a lot of these programs. And in, and indeed, uh, you know, these these humanitarian quote unquote uh, aid projects also have security implications Absolutely. in many many cases. Absolutely. So what what if if our students in our classes ask about this, you know, what can I do? How can I even? I'm in southern indiana what is yeah. this how can i get involved how? yeah again americans really do want uh, want to help um a significant percentage think that think that we should help um and i do think it's important to know that it this doesn't have to be just something that states and intergovernmental organizations and um and international ngos do um regular folks here among us um can have uh, effects in positive ways um through t tapping into systems and networks that pre are pre-existing. Kind of um, like the motto, think globally, act locally. Yes, absolutely, um, which I think is our common experience motto for next year, <laughs> yes. just as a little early plug for that. <laughs> but, um, you know, these, these organizations that we've been talking about, especially some of the NGOs, have connections in local countries or various countries around the globe, and they are able to um, do things like tap into um, – uh, women's groups very often who make things, who make clothing, who make arts and crafts, often out of trash that they are um, that they essentially scavenge, um, and then they sell them in wealthier countries like here through fair trade programs. Um, and we have a fair trade store um, in Louisville, right in our community, um, Just Creations at the corner of Frankfurt Avenue and Bailey, um, where people can go and buy really really unique handcrafted items, where the vast majority of the of the money that, that they are paying goes straight back to um, people in the countries, the fo in various countries around the globe who need help, and, and those who produced it. Mm -hmm. um, rather than going to you know some corporation, it goes to local poor people through again um, networks of non-governmental organizations that that connect um, 
craftspeople with um, the global market. Um, or coffee, fair trade coffee. Fair trade yeah, coffee, that's fair right. trade Starbucks chocolate. All of those exactly. Kind of connected directly to the producers. Exactly. Um, we talked about the Grameen Bank as being a model for microcredit. There's a website called kiva.org that allows people to go in and for um, amounts as small as $25 um, select, and you can do lots of research about the people in the organization, um, select specific recipients for loans. And your, your 25 bucks can go can be pooled with other people and make one of those hundred dollar loans um that kind of thing so there's a there's a lot that that people can do there's also even local ngos louisville um has a has a local ngo called water step and they help um, provide clean water um, they're always looking for volunteers yep oh. yep they provide water filtration systems so that people can have which is a huge issue for for health and well-being yeah so. There's, a, there's so, a lot there. Yeah, th these are on the micro level, but also on the macro level, U.S. is a U.S. is a powerful country, most wealthy in the world, and also contributes a significant share in terms of absolute value. But yet, when it comes to uh, as a percentage GNI, we kind of lag behind the OECD countries. We are kind of far uh, in the in the background, so to say. So in that sense, the U.S. can do a lot more. And knowing that the aid does provide opportunity. In both that is morally right and also economically and politically strategic for U.S., I think it will serve U.S. well in the long run. Johnny, I th we're out of time, but I want to thank you so much for uh, being our guest today and sharing your insights on this important topic. Thank you very uh, much, John. This is a great opportunity to kind of share and have a discussion dialogue with the wonderful colleagues like both Cliff and Jean and with the help of Sean, and it's a beautiful morning, and we are starting on a nice note. I hope you got something of value. Absolutely. Um, next week, we're going to talk about Cuba. I'd like to thank you for listening, and um, follow our podcasts and our Saturday, our Saturday programs. Thank you again for listening.